Welcome to Socialist Sound, a production of Seattle DSA. I'm your host, Ty Moore. In this episode, I speak with the legendary Jane Slaughter, a founder and longtime editor of Labor Notes, about the ongoing strike of auto workers against the big three U.S. auto companies. Then I speak with Manya Janowitz, a Seattle DSA member and union organizer, about the strike and contract battle at Homegrown, the local Mercer Island-based sandwich chain. My interview with Jane Slaughter covers the immediate strike news and what it's going to take for the auto workers to win their very bold demands. And we get into the background of how the United Auto Workers president, Sean Fain, and his small opposition caucus defeated the entrenched UAW bureaucracy earlier this year that led to this historic strike. Before getting into these interviews, I want to appeal for your support. This podcast is only possible because of the generous monthly contributions of Seattle DSA members and supporters, which pays my part-time salary. But the truth is, Seattle DSA is running a deficit budget, taking a risk to make this podcast and other work possible. If you want to see our local socialist media continue to expand, we need to significantly boost our monthly contributions. Please contribute what you can at seattledsa.org backslash podcast. Pause the show right now, open up your browser, and type in seattledsa.org backslash podcast and sign up as a monthly donor. Then sit back and enjoy the inspiring story we're about to tell you, knowing that you are part of what makes it possible. Now to my interview with Jane Slaughter, recorded this past Thursday, September 21st. Well, thanks so much, Jane, for joining me today. We're going to dive much deeper into some of these questions later, but just in a quick minute to start with. The success of the reform movement in the United Auto Workers, followed by the current strike around bold demands like 40% wage increases, cost of living adjustments, a 32-hour work week, it seems really historic to me, and it seems like it comes at a moment when there is a real potential to finally revitalize the American labor movement. Um, as a longtime participant, as an organizer and thoughtful commentator on the labor movement, what's your quick take? What's the big picture of the significance of the strike? I hope it has the potential to help union workers and other workers see the potential for flexing their own power to reverse what's been a generation of givebacks. This is the right time. Companies are extremely profitable, not just in auto. We saw the big money that UPS was willing to spend to settle their contract this summer. This is a great example of a union using its very strategic position to win things for members and by extension for other workers who would then try to make their employers uh, play copycat. And Sean Fain, the president of the union, his consistent rhetoric about how this strike is for the entire working class, he always says that, he never says middle class, it helps with that. It helps make people see that this is something that is for everyone. So I think the UAW right now is setting an example that's making workers proud to be working class and more optimistic about what they deserve. Well, let me introduce you to our listeners a bit more. You're a socialist, a DSA member. Some of our listeners might have seen you at the DSA convention last month. And you've been reporting on the political battles within the UAW for over four decades, first as a member of the union in the mid-1970s, 
and then as a founder and editor of Labor Notes. How did you begin, first begin reporting on the UAW, and what led you uh, to help found Labor Notes? Well, I was still an auto worker at Chrysler when Labor Notes was founded in February 1979. I was working in a stamping plant, and I was working on the union newspaper there. This was a newspaper that actually won um, an award for our reporting. And then a couple of months later, I was fired um, because of collusion between local union officials and management. Had to decide what to do. Uh, Labor Notes had just been founded, and um, I had really liked working on that local union newspaper, so I accepted the invitation of the other two staffers, and I joined Labor Notes and was there for many, many years, and uh, always covering the UAW. Wonderful. Well, I'm very glad you're in DSA, offering your experience and insights to the new generation of labor radicals. You've reported on and developed strategy with several generations of union reform movements and the auto workers, but also in Teamsters and other unions. And I remember shortly after I became politically active in the mid-90s, I spent a day on the militant picket lines of the Detroit newspaper strike that had a big impact on me. And I think it was on that trip that I first came across Labor Notes. And, and a couple of years later, I think it was 1998, I saw you speak at my first Labor Notes conference. So I've been reading your articles and following your work for most of my adult life. And it's really an honor to have you on the show and hear some of your thoughts and insights into this truly historic strike against the big three automakers. So we're a week into this historic strike. It began with 13,000 of the 150,000 auto workers called out with three in three high profile plants. And tomorrow, if I understand correctly, um, we're recording this on Thursday. So on Friday, tomorrow, UAW President Sean Fain has announced that the strike will be spreading. So, yeah, how do you think the strike is going so far? Well, I went out to one of the plants that had been announced to strike at, at midnight last Thursday with a whole bunch of other DSAers and, and other people. And the people coming out of the plant looked shell-shocked. They really looked shocked, which is not surprising since there had been no strike at Ford since 1978. So there's literally no Ford worker with strike experience. Um, looking a little bit broader than that, uh, I think among some workers, there was some disappointment when their plant wasn't chosen, probably among a larger number of workers, more relief because, you know, people, most workers don't want to strike if they don't have to. They um, worry about the uncertainty and the, the loss of pay. But as the days have gone on, and as, you know, I, I keep going out to the strike lines here in the Detroit area at the Ford Michigan Assembly Plant, I'm finding that workers like the strategy of picking a few to start with, and they understand that it's to start with, that, it, that it's a strategy of escalation. They're very eager to know where the next shoe is going to drop, and the other thing I'm hearing is just a huge faith in their new president, Sean Fain. I've never seen anything remotely resembling that, that workers in the UAW would speak with pride and love um, for their union president. Uh, just yesterday, I was out there and there were three young workers on the line I was talking to. They had less than three years seniority, and they had come out even though it was not their assigned picket shift, as you know, people Everybody, the workforce is broken up, so everybody has an assignment. But they came out extra, 
And one of them said to me, Sean has it set up to be all strategic. It makes a whole lot of sense because it draws it out longer. And then another worker said, he's playing battleship with them, them being the companies. So I think that the strike is going well for the workers. They're, they're liking it. They're getting used to the idea. Um, if they're like me, they want to see it <laughs> spread some more. We'll see what happens with the announcement tomorrow. But another thing I could point out, though, that this has really got management scrambling. They are not used to this. As you know, uh, in the past, the UAW would just strike every plant at one company. It was very routinized. Um, this time, the companies are really guessing. Um, the, the story I know um, is that management thought that the Spring Hill plant in Tennessee, that's a GM plant, was going to be struck. It's electric vehicles. And that would indeed be a very worthy strike target. Who knows? Maybe they're coming up soon. I don't know. Um, but because they thought Spring Hill would be on strike, they shipped 14 trucks worth of engines to another GM plant to be used there in Missouri. And then lo and behold, the Missouri plant went on strike. So they had to ship those 14 trucks worth of engines back to Spring Hill. So, and I'm sure there are other examples of management not knowing and therefore making mistakes. It's, it's fun to see. Well, just on your point about Sean Fain being really loved, I listened to a speech um, he gave, I think, on the eve of the strike. And I'm, I'm not religious anymore, but I grew up in a Methodist household. And to hear him kind of integrate class struggle rhetoric with, you know, classic line of, you know, it's easier for a camel to fit through the head of a needle than uh, for a rich man to end up in the kingdom of heaven and translating that about how hellish the conditions are inside the plants and making a very, you know, moral as well as, you know, class struggle argument for what this is about. It just, you know, I knew about Sean Fain. I'd read about his victory, but it, it was a real taste of authority. It seems like he's developing the moral authority. So that, that's interesting. It's been really amazing to see the, the authority and how he's grown as a speaker and as a leader and finally being able to let his politics be unleashed. You know, he spent 10 years on the staff and it was a source of continual frustration for him. Uh, so, yeah, the man, that he was able to pick the class struggle parts out of the Bible, I thought was really beautiful. Well, if this strike develops into a bigger, more generalized confrontation, you know, a real strike movement with the majority of workers out, can you explain how this could change the balance of forces within the UAW on the shop floor and local level, as well as how it could contribute to, you know, revitalizing the UAW as a whole? Well, this campaign is already revitalizing the UAW. Think of all the ways that it is. The communication from the international that we've just been talking about, the members love the Facebook Live things that Fane has been doing every week and, and more often. He speaks directly to them. He even takes their comments in the chat, you know, unfiltered. They've never seen anything remotely like that before, and they love it. And then the contract campaign that happened earlier this summer with the practice picketing. Literally, there has never been a contract campaign at the big three since I've lived in Detroit, which is 1974. Uh, not so much as a button, nothing, nothing to prepare the members for, for what was going on or a strike 
at all. So that's all been new. Um, the rally in downtown Detroit where they had Bernie Sanders speaking, uh, encouraging members to speak to the, to the press. In the past, they were forbidden to speak to the press. And now they're not only encouraged, the union put on a training where they had people come and learn how to uh, tell their stories. Or even better, right now what's happening is they are encouraging members in the plants that aren't on strike to turn down voluntary overtime. We have a wonderful article about this on the LaborNotes site, labornotes.org. You can find it. Look for eight and skate. That's the um, slogan in, in one of the plants here in Detroit. Eight hours and out. Eight and skate. Um, members in that local are talking to each other on Facebook to convince them each other why this is a, a good tactic for those that don't get it. So people in the big three outside of just the three plants that are on strike are participating. They're finding ways to participate. And this has really changed the internal dynamic of the union from leading, telling members to sit down, shut up, you're lucky to have a job. If you don't like it, you can look for another one to we have pride in our union, we have faith in ourselves, we want to be out there doing things, we deserve a good contract. Everybody thinks they deserve a good contract. <laughs> Nobody thinks they're overpaid, as the media has told them for years. Now, we still have the old guard in the union, it's called the Administration Caucus, it's existed since the 40s, uh, ran the union for over 70 years without you know, without anybody being able to break into that. So it's still there, but it's got nothing to say about this new militancy. What are they going to say? Oh, no, let's not fight the companies. They can't oppose it openly. And I'm sure they will think of something to say when they have to run for office next time, local level and international level, because I was always amazed when I was a UAW member at their creativity at coming up with bullshit reasons for the things they wanted to do or the things they didn't want to do. So I'm sure they'll think of something because they want to hold on to their elected positions. But for now, the spirit that was swept into office when the reformers were swept into office is holding sway. Uh, and people can't say, no, we shouldn't be doing this. That's inspiring to hear. One of the most Inspiring things to me about the strike are the UAW's very bold demands of 40% raise over four years, reinstating cost of living adjustments so that workers' base pay will rise uh, roughly with the rate of inflation, ending the two-tier system for new hires, um, which, which relegates new hires to lower wages and benefits, job security as the auto industry transitions to electric, the 32-hour work week, reviving that sort of classic idea of the left of the labor movement. Um, and Sean Fain has, as you mentioned already, cast these demands as part of a much wider class struggle in the U.S., echoing Bernie Sanders' rhetoric against the billionaire class. So it seems like these demands and these class struggles uh, rhetoric are really resonating. I saw the poll, I think, shortly before the strike that showed 70 percent public support for the UAW uh, going on strike. So I know some of these demands are all about taking back some of the concessions that were lost over the decades of concessionary contracts, especially after the Great Recession and the Obama administration's bailout of the auto industry, um, which, you know, helped the bosses a lot more than the workers. Talk about this history and where the UAW strike demands today come from. Well, as you said, a lot is about 
taking back what they gave up. I can't tell you how many workers I've talked to who've put it just in those terms. We sacrificed to help the companies. Now when they're raking in profits, they don't want to share with us. So they see it as regaining lost ground. I mean, think of, they gave up the cost of living in 2007. Think of all the purchasing power that they gave up with that. And the, the legacy workers, the first tier workers, literally went 10 years without a raise. Um, so there's a lot to be given up. In my view, one of the, well, it's hard to say the most important, but maybe the most important demand is to end tiers. The, the newer workers, that is, those hired after uh, 2000, well, it's a little complicated, but since that bailout from the government, literally making half of what the older workers make. $15.78 is the starting pay at Stellantis. You know, you can make that at, at McDonald's. Um, and there's no pensions for any new hire since then. None at all. Um, again, I've heard this over and over, people saying, this used to be a career, now it's just a job. Why should we come to work regularly? Why, sh why should they stay here for any amount of time when it's just a, a, another low-paid job? Uh, so they really, really want to get the pensions. Now, that's a problem, because pensions are extremely expensive, um, as you know. Uh, I don't know if they're going to get that, but to me, a, a way to end the tiers so that people could get to full pay, not take eight years to get to full pay, but take a, 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 a much less time to get to full pay and get some kind of pension and um, health care after they retire, that would be one of the most important things. And I think you mentioned another thing they want is to bring the work at uh, electrical vehicle plants under the national massacre agreements. The companies have set up joint ventures, usually with um, Asian companies to make batteries, and those are all totally separate. Uh, they don't, you know, they're not, most of them are not even unionized yet. So they want a way that those workers who are certainly auto workers should be part of their national master agreements as well, and that's Super important. You can't have this huge uh, non-union sector out there. Right. Well, to transition a little bit, yesterday, The Socialist Call um, published an article by you addressing fellow DSA members and telling the story of how Sean Fain rose to power in the UAW. Your article tells the story of how an initially small opposition caucus calling itself Unite All Workers for Democracy or UAWD, formed, uh, I think, just four years ago and fought an intense battle against a deeply entrenched bureaucracy, first for internal union democracy and then to win leadership of the UAW last year. You wrote, quote, if UAWD had not existed and organized hard, this fight that has so much potential to change the stakes for the entire labor movement would not be happening. So what are the main political battle lines? What were the main political battle lines between the old UAW leadership, the administration caucus, and this new leadership? And why do you think the current strike wouldn't be possible without Sean Fain and UAWD coming to power? The battle lines were on just about everything. Um, we, the administration caucus opposed one member, one vote. They wanted to still be elected at these tightly controlled conventions. 
for quite a long time, they had opposed demanding anything much of the companies. They were very ready, ready and willing to give concessions. And really, they saw the union as a cushy career. Uh, you got elected to local office, you became president, then you got, as they put it, picked up by the international into a, uh, a nice desk job at the headquarters. And essentially, that's how they saw the union, as a, uh, a career ladder. UAWD is the opposite of all that. Um, they, are, they were for one member, one vote. It was their idea. Uh, and that's how they won. Uh, they are for transparency. They're for fighting the companies. Uh, so if the administration caucus were still in control, I think they would be trying to figure out how to get something out of the companies, given their huge profits that are very obvious, uh, but without riling up the members too much. Um, in 2019, four years ago, there was a 40-day strike at GM, but no member was told anything. There was no clarity on demands. And after it was over, people felt the strike uh, didn't gain very much, but except it had been a, a method to wear the members down so that they would vote yes. So the, the contrast is really just night and day. Well, clearly a lot is at stake in this strike, not just for the UAW, but for the entire working class. We're in the midst of the biggest strike wave since Red for Ed teacher strikes uh, a few years back. And there's a lot of excitement about new worker organizing, about reform movements coming to power in the Teamsters, the UAW and elsewhere. And yet, of course, by historic standards, labor remains extremely weak with total union density and steady decline over the last couple decades. What we call a strike wave today would have looked like a low point in strike activity during the four-decade heyday of the U.S. labor movement following World War II. So I've seen some interviews with workers, and you mentioned this earlier on the first day, feeling a bit disappointed that they weren't called out. Um, some in DSA have questioned if limiting strike action to just a few plants rather than an all-out strike um, can win the UAW's bold demands. So what are your thoughts? I know you commented a little bit on this already, but on these tactics and more generally, what do you think it's going to take to win, you know, some very significant demands, some very significant concessions that they're calling for? As in any strike to win, it will take convincing management that the workers are prepared to do what it takes to get what they want and they won't back down until they get it. So whether that means expanding the strike or more of this hit and run the way we've seen in the past week, just a few plants and then maybe a few more and then maybe a few more, um, maybe an extended battle that goes on for months, maybe some of the initial people that struck go back or maybe management locks them out. We don't know. Um, I don't feel qualified to say whether this is going to be the best, best uh, winning strategy. It would have been stunning uh, to take all three companies out, every single worker. Uh, the strike fund wouldn't have lasted too long in that situation. Uh, but as I said, to win, whether it's uh, a long, slow process with different people uh, being chosen to fight harder at different moments, or whether it's more expansion with uh, more people on strike at the same time, Whatever it is, the companies will have to be convinced that it's a new sheriff in town and they can't settle cheap as in the past. And I think that's disorienting for the companies. 
um, from what I hear about negotiations, <laughs> they, they just aren't used to this idea that somebody might not be amenable to their demands, their demands for concessions. Uh, and I think that they will, before too long, uh, become convinced that they're going to have to pony up. I also, you know, I don't have any inside scoop on, you know, the mood of the workers, et cetera. So I don't feel particularly qualified to make a sharp judgment. But when I read, you know, the history of some of the transformative strikes that, you know, shaped the American labor movement, you know, they, these all out strikes developed these, you know, huge solidarity movements and just, you know, developed a mass movement character that has not really been evident in most strikes over the recent decades. Red for Ed sort of has a somewhat of an exception to that and kind of pointed in a certain direction. But it feels to me like the potential for for that exists in this situation, but it, it would take, you know, a real escalation in tactics and scale for that to happen. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, it would be good if, if the strike were happening in more cities so that more local labor movements could show their solidarity. People are stepping up here in the Detroit area. Uh, you mentioned the newspaper strike of 1995. That was not a huge number of workers, but boy, was it popular in the labor movement and in, uh, among the general population as well. So it doesn't have to be a huge number of workers. I mean, I've you know, seen in the time I was at Labor Notes, many, many relatively small strikes that still were able to galvanize lots of support. Think about the members of the United Electrical Workers who occupied their plant. That would have been, I think, December 2008. Um, that was one of the more exciting things that happened. Or the workers at, in the mid-80s at Hormel in Minnesota, the P9 workers, they, they got support from all over the labor movement. So it doesn't necessarily have to be big, uh, but I'd agree with you that it would be nice if it happened in more places so that more people could directly and personally get involved in the solidarity. Well, you emphasized uh, the importance of forming reform caucus. Obviously, this is you know one of the most uh, case in point <laughs> moments uh, in recent U.S. labor history. We've seen huge successes of the Reform Caucus and the Teamsters, um, which almost went on strike or there was, you know, built a credible threat of it earlier this summer and now the UAW. But of course, just getting a Reform Caucus elected into leadership of a union does not by itself immediately transform the union. So what are the more medium term tasks as someone who's been at the core and uh, following and reporting and involved in strategy of reform caucus movements over many, many decades now, you know, what do you think it takes uh, over the medium term to transform a union, both from the bottom up and when you win these leadership positions, what needs to happen at the top? Yes. Uh, well, just a reminder that uh, when they finally got control of the executive board in March of this year, the leaders of the UAW had to jump immediately into a con contract campaign followed by a strike at the same time as they were clearing out a lot of the deadwood on staff, bringing on some new people, there was resistance to that. Uh, so they, they were thrown into the fire just almost immediately. But to me, it's remarkable how they managed to gear up for the contract campaign and the strike with really not enough time. But this, this sort of points to the fact that in a way they were elected before they were ready. It would, 
UAWD was not a huge movement. It, the turnout in the election was low. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, vast uh, numbers of UAW members were suddenly shaken out of their cynicism about the union and they were all out there campaigning and saying, yes, things are going to change and we're excited. No, that did not happen before the election. It's starting to happen a little bit more now. So I think if you think of the platonic ideal of a reform movement, it would build up over time. You know, people would run for local office, they'd have a base and some locals, they would, you know, be constantly accruing more credibility and, and more members. But instead, the members were just suddenly presented with this opportunity that the federal government was investigating the union for corruption, well, a lot of corruption, and was saying, we got to come in and clean this up. And so a bunch of members who had been involved in smaller versions of a reform movement uh, up until that time decided to run with it. I mean, to run with it. And they said, uh, yes, we're, we're, we're going to take advantage of this opportunity. And they proposed to the government monitor that the members be given the chance to, to vote for their top officers. And even though they, you know, many of the people at that point were inexperienced I worked with one guy back in, in that time who'd never been to a union meeting before he got involved in fighting for one member, one vote. Um, so th they took the opportunity, even though they were green and in some ways not big enough. And lo and behold, the members heard their politics and heard their call for democracy and transparency and militancy, and they voted for it. And so now we have a majority on the executive board. So this is, uh, like I say, they were thrown into the fire. And now both the people at the top and the members are having to confront officials with decades of experience in running the union badly and in discouraging member involvement. Those people are still in office at the local level. So... After this strike, UAWD and many other people who, you know, don't officially join a caucus, of course, are going to need to continue this patient work of building up their bases in the locals, organizing members on the shop floor to stand up to management, running for office. They definitely should not skip that organizing on the shop floor part, and that's been one of UAWD's strengths is, is teaching people how to do that. Um, so this strike and what goes along with it will be a huge boost to those efforts that come after the strike because members will have gotten the opportunity to see what it feels like to let's all organize together to turn down overtime. Let's, uh, our union wants us to do this. So the fact that the International is encouraging people to confront management collectively, that's brand new and that is going to help to push forward the political fight in the union, help more people to become leaders, help better people to get elected. You, you mentioned in, in the article that, yes, this caucus is very young, but there are some veterans of previous reform movements, even some people going back to the New Directions movement in the 1980s. And it just gets to a 
deep. So two questions. One, kind of what is the balance within UAWD? I don't quite have a sense of, you know, you said they're small, but like, you know, <laughs> how small and, you know, what's the kind of balance between some of these longtime veterans, many of them, you know, very conscious socialists and uh, the new generation of reformers. And maybe a follow up to that is, you know, yeah, what do you think for, for DSA members listening to this? What's what's the role of socialists in the labor movement? The majority of people in UAWD, I think, are younger and newer, uh, some older and newer, and some who've been active in their locals on some level uh, for a while, but they have learned a lot from the people who've been around longer. As you mentioned, the New Directions movement that existed in the Union in the 1980s, that was very important. Um, in starting in 2007 or eight. I think it was 2008, there was a group called the Auto Worker Caravan, and that included people who'd been in the New Directions movement. They actually formed a caravan to drive to Washington, D.C. from Detroit uh, to lobby Congress not to totally screw the workers when they were doing the Obama auto bailout. That's why it was called Caravan. But they carried forward the politics of New Directions, the politics of we have to fight the companies. As you said, uh, some of those people were socialists. And the fact that the caravan continued to exist on the shoulders of New Directions, I think that oriented a, a number of the people who then went on to found UAWD. And U UAWD was its own thing, but the fact that there were veterans around who could orient people into the sorts of battles they had to fight um, and the politics that were necessary to try to fight them. I think that was uh, super important. Well, finally, looking at this strike alongside the new organizing efforts at places like Starbucks and Amazon, where do you see the labor movement going from here? What are your hopes and what do you see the challenges uh, in the next few years? I think that organizing Amazon should be one of the highest priorities of the labor movement, and that falls to the Teamsters, which I believe is up to the task. They're probably going to need to get some other unions involved because Amazon is just so entirely huge. But that giant behemoth uh, is eating a lot of other companies' lunch, and so to organize Amazon would be super important. Almost equally important is to organize the rest of the auto industry. People may not realize that the UAW probably only represents about half because of all the non-union plants that have been built, mostly in the South, uh, by Nissan and Mercedes and um, Volkswagen and Toyota. All those plants are non-union, and of, of course they can operate cheaper. They don't have much in the way of pensions to pay, for example. And so the UAW absolutely has to go out and organize those plants. And it's my understanding that that's their next job one after they win the strike. So it's an exciting time to be a DSA member because of the possibilities that are opening up in the labor movement now. There have been many 
years when there's been a huge gap between most people who were socialists and not necessarily active in the labor movement at all, and then this huge sleepy labor movement, you know, over on on the side. So I think it as the labor movement rediscovers itself, it really behooves us as socialists to be part of that. And I would encourage every DSA member to try to find out how, whether it's through organizing your own workplace between or switching jobs so that you can get into one that's already unionized or doing labor solidarity when when strikes happen or other contract campaigns happen. It's, It's an exciting time to be able to do this and it's essential if DSA is going to live up to its own potential. Well, thank you so much, Jane Slaughter, for taking the time to sit down with me. I think this is going to be really interesting for our listeners to hear your insights after you know decades of experience with the UAW and the labor movement as a whole. So thanks so much for joining me today. That was Jane Slaughter, founder and longtime editor of Labor Notes and a member of the Detroit chapter of DSA. Now we turn to the strike and ongoing contract battle at Homegrown, a local sandwich chain. My guest is Manya Janowitz, a Seattle DSA member and a union organizer with Unite Here Local 8. Manya worked at the distribution center owned by Homegrown CEO, playing a central role in the organizing drive there and at the Homegrown sandwich stores themselves. She was then hired on as a staff organizer with Unite Here in February after they won uni recognition at both. Welcome to Social Sound, Manya. Thanks for having me. So the six-month organizing drive at Homegrown won recognition in December last year. And since then, you guys have been in a prolonged fight for your first contract. In mid-September, Homegrown workers went on a three-day strike but I know the fight continues. So why don't you begin um, by just giving our listeners some background on Homegrown and what led the workers to organize? Yeah, Uh, Homegrown is a uh, local sandwich store. Uh, Folks might have seen them all over the region. Um, There are 10 10 Homegrown stores and uh, about 150 workers across the company. Um, It's a company that really relies, I think, like other chains, fast food places, really relies on like young workers and uh, banks on a high turnover of young people, uh, I think in part so that they can get away with not actually providing sustainable, like stable jobs and not providing good benefits for people. Um, So Part of what led, I think there were a lot of things that led uh, workers to want to organize. I mean, partly it's that, right, there are a lot of young workers, but that's actually not, uh, that it, it's not just a young workforce. There are lots of folks who have families, a lot of folks who have kids. Um, and, uh, you know, for young workers, people who are trying to um, work through college um, and people who are trying to uh, just survive in a city that is very, very expensive. Um, and so I think one of the, you know, there were a few really big issues that led people to organize. One was pay, which is quite obvious. I mean, people um, right now are paid minimum um, $16.75 an hour. 
uh, it is um, almost impossible to afford rent on that wage in the city. Uh, and then, um, you know, benefits is another big thing. The healthcare currently is at, like no one, basically no one has healthcare with this company because it's way too expensive. Um, and then disrespect was a really big issue as well. Disrespect from, um, from managers, disrespect from, um, from customers, but yeah. Well, tell me more about the contract battle over the last few months and what led up to this strike. Yeah. So we've been in bargaining for quite a while, uh, since February of this past year. Um, I will say there we have won like pretty incredible things at the table so far. And I think right now we have the makings of a really strong first contract um, that I'm very proud of. The, the two, like I think, really cool things that I just want to touch on briefly uh, is that we've won language around heat pay and around air quality in the workplace, which is contract language that I actually I don't think exists anywhere else. And the reason, yeah, the reason this came up is because um, uh, some of the really big issues that people organized around um, last year were uh, air quality in the stores. So really, really smoky stores um, that, you know, could get up to like 300 AQI. Um, people's eyes like burning, um, people needing to leave work because like the air quality was so awful in the store. Uh, and then also um, heat. So like in the summer, the sandwich line, like, I think oh, probably almost every food service joint uh, gets really, really hot. And, um, you know, the company would not, we either had AC that wasn't fully working or had broken and workers were forced to work in like really hot conditions. Um, and was the air quality issue? I mean, was that just because they didn't have proper ventilation and the or what was going on there? Yeah, it's an issue with ventilation. Um, it's, uh, and yeah, it's an issue with, it's basically a ventilation issue with the, the toasters, which is the main, right? They have to have the toasters on, it's a sandwich shop. So every sandwich goes through that sort of like small oven, small toaster oven and proper ventilation didn't exist. So what we actually did around the air quality and the heat issue last summer is that workers were organizing around this multiple stores went on actually a one day strike last year around these issues in particular and took other actions around the issues. So I think it was because of, because of the actions we took that we were able to win strong language at the table. Um, the, the heat pay language that we've won says that basically you, um, you get sort of paid a premium when it gets above a certain degree. So above 82 degrees, you get paid time and a half for working above 86 degrees. You get paid double time. You'd also have the option to leave without being disciplined. Wow. And you're saying nowhere else in the country that you're aware of has similar contract language that I'm aware of. This was, I think this is a first. Wow. That's really, really exciting. And, and yeah. sort of obvious too. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what you, I've, I've never worked in restaurants, but my sister did. And I've had so many friends who just complain about, yeah, it's pretty brutal conditions sometimes. It's so brutal. So the issues that are, you know, th those are issues that the company's already agreed to in these contract negotiations. But what are the remaining issues on the table that led up to this strike? The, the two issues that workers decided to strike over um, are job security and health care. 
So workers had decided that we wanted to, that they wanted to strike. There were six stores who had taken strike votes. Um, and the company, because of this strike threat, actually did move quite a bit on pay, where they moved on the on raises. They also moved on um, like mandatory tipping on some of the platforms that are used, like some of the online platforms that are used. Um, but they told us at the bargaining table that giving affordable healthcare premiums to workers and their families was a hill that they were going to die on that they would not give affordable healthcare to people. So the their proposal right now is that if you are insuring a family, so any number of kids and a and a partner, uh, that they would want a worker to pay $800 a month wow. for that healthcare. And keep in mind, right, with raises people will likely be working for $20 an hour, maybe a little bit more. There's no way someone is going to opt for insurance or be able to afford insurance that costs $800 a month on $20 an hour in Seattle. So this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, that clearly their business model is not to make these stable jobs that people can you know, raise a family on, but rather to have constant churn and just focus on exploiting young workers who are you know, desperate for any job and, and you know, moving, getting rid of them when... They get too feisty. Correct. And yeah, but that's what we've been fighting for this whole time is making these jobs, jobs that people can actually survive and, and live in the city on. Right. Right. Well, I know a lot of DSA members walked the picket lines with you all when you went on strike in mid-September and folks were really energized. Tell me more about the strike itself and the, and where things stand now. Yeah. Uh, the strike was, um, a really awesome, exciting three days. Uh, the first day uh, workers went out, it was Thursday, September 14th. And that was also um, the National Day of Action for Starbucks Workers United. And um, we, you know, workers decided to do that so we could have a show of solidarity with, um, you know, with our, our comrades in the, in the food service fight here in Seattle. Um, so the Homegrown workers before the pickets did leafleting outside of Starbucks stores to show support for Starbucks. Starbucks workers um, came to our, our pickets to show solidarity as well. Um, we had gone into the strike. Um, there had been uh, six stores um, out of right out of out of homegrown that had taken strike votes and had those workers had decided to go on strike for these issues for job security and, and healthcare. Um, over the course of the strike, there were two more stores, workers at two more stores who decided to join us. Uh, and so by the end of it, we had eight stores on strike. Um, it was really awesome to see workers feel like emboldened, inspired, like in solidarity with the rest of the company by making the decision to, to join their, 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 uh, their coworkers out on the picket lines. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Thank you so much, Manya, for taking some time to sit down with me. I'm sure this is an ongoing story and, you know, we may uh, bring you back on the show uh, sometime soon. Sounds great. I'd love to do it. That was Manya Janowitz, Seattle DSA member and organizer with Unite Here. If you like this podcast and want it to continue, please become a monthly sustainer of Seattle DSA. 
to sustain and expand this local socialist media project alongside our other ambitious organizing goals, we need to significantly raise Seattle DSA's monthly income. Go to seattledsa.org backslash podcast today and contribute what you can. Again, that is seattledsa.org backslash podcast. This was the sixth episode of Socialist Sound, a podcast produced by Seattle DSA. Thanks so much to Jason Corey for volunteering the long hours needed to mix and edit this episode. I'm your host, Ty Moore. Thanks for listening. Thank you.